Let us pray. Father, we do give you thanks and praise. We have sung of your sovereignty. You are the one who rules all things, who works all things together for your own glory and for the good of your people. Father, we take great comfort in this. We take great comfort in knowing that you sent your son to suffer and die for us, to rise again on the third day, to be our savior, to redeem us from sin, to trample Satan under his feet, to rescue us from the clutches of death. And Father, we thank you that through your Son, you have poured out your Holy Spirit to give us new life, to bear fruit in our lives, to work in us faith and repentance and obedience and perseverance. Father, may you do all these things for us today as your word goes forth, through your word as it goes forth. This we pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is one of those stories that everybody knows. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, Certainly, if you grew up in the church, uh, you heard quite a bit about this story as a kid. You probably heard it in Sunday school, uh, taught more than once. It is a thrilling story a story filled with danger, deception, and yes, a decisive victory for the good guy. Uh, It's a story that if you learned it in Sunday school, what was the big lesson that was taught? What was the big lesson you were probably taught if you heard this growing up in Sunday school? It was probably something like, dare to be a Daniel. Daniel was bold. Daniel was brave. Dare to be a Daniel. Be brave and courageous like Daniel. And indeed, that is one of the lessons from this story. I'll come back to that uh, here at the end, how to be brave in the midst of hostility and persecution. The story of Daniel really does give us a model for bold faithfulness in the midst of a hostile culture, no doubt about it. But there's so much more here, so much more to this story. So let's dig into it and see what we find. Uh, As this chapter opens, a new regime has just come into power. The Babylonians have given way to the Persians. This empire, this new empire is ruled by Darius, also known as Cyrus. And as the chapter opens, he is reorganizing his kingdom. And so we hear that he sets up 120 satraps and then over them there are three governors or three higher officials of whom Daniel was one. Verse three tells us that Daniel had distinguished himself above the other governors and satraps. Daniel was the best of the best. Daniel, of course, was an Israelite. He had been carried away from his home in the promised land into exile uh, by the Babylonians, a generation earlier, but he continually rose to the top of the various pagan empires in which he lived. Think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery. He's exiled away to Egypt. There he interprets dreams. He becomes second in command. He's promoted. He's exalted in that way. So it is with Daniel. It's the same story playing itself out. Daniel is a new Joseph. Daniel has an excellent spirit, we are told. So the king even considers handing the whole kingdom 
over to him. This excellent spirit, of course, is ultimately the Holy Spirit at work in Daniel, causing him to excel. But this is also how Daniel himself pursues his work, his calling. Uh, Note that Daniel's competence is what puts him in this high-ranking position. It wasn't just handed to him. He gained it through his competence. Proverbs 22 tells us that a man who is skillful in his work will stand before kings. That's Daniel. Daniel has distinguished himself in the eyes of Darius in this way. Daniel does his work with competence and excellence, with skill and with integrity, and so the emperor can't help but take notice. Daniel has caught the eye of the emperor and he's been promoted to this position. And note this too, Daniel puts himself in position to be a leader. You might even say Daniel was ambitious. There was a kind of holy ambition, a kind of godly ambition that Daniel had. So he embraces this leadership role. And this leadership role gives Daniel great power in the kingdom. But what does he do with that power? He always wields it righteously. Daniel has great power, but power does not corrupt him. Indeed, Daniel is a great example of how Christians should be involved in the world and yet resist the world's ways and the world's temptations. Daniel was a godly leader in a godless society. There are some Christians who think that Christians should never seek power. We should never seek power, especially we should never seek political power because it's always tainted and it always corrupts. Daniel did not see it that way. He is a powerful man. He is prosperous. He is a man of high status. He's all those things, but he's also godly. He has power, but he uses and possesses that power in proper and wise ways. And in that, of course, he is indeed a model. But... His prominence also made him the object of envy on the part of other satraps and governors. They see Daniel's excellence. They see how Daniel has the favor of the king because he's so competent. He's so skilled at what he does. He has so much wisdom. And they're jealous. They're envious. They want to bring Daniel down. And so they seek to find ways to bring charges against Daniel. But there is a problem. They couldn't find any fault with Daniel. They can't find any fault, any flaw in Daniel's character. Daniel, unlike most of the people in politics we are familiar with, Daniel was blameless. He is not corrupt. He is not negligent. You know, we're so used to political corruption. It's hard to fathom a high-ranking civil official who can't be bought, a high-ranking civil official who can't be nailed because of some character flaw or some compromise he's made somewhere along the way to get to the top, some compromise that he's made somewhere along the way. Daniel was faithful. He was righteous. Daniel obeyed God. He did not love money. He did not sleep around. He did not cheat. He did not take bribes. Daniel was blameless. And so as these satraps and other governors are trying to find a way to to trap Daniel, it's hard for them. They, they realize the only thing they can do will somehow involve Daniel's religion. So they conspire together. They concoct a plan to trap Daniel. Again, they know Daniel is a devout worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They know he scrupulously obeys God's law. 
the law of Moses, the Torah. So they figure the way to get Daniel is to somehow use his obedience to his God against him. And so they will manufacture a conflict between the law of the land and the law of God, the law of Darius and the law of God. It's interesting that these men... Uh, several times are not just called men, even though translations sometimes just leave it as men. They're actually called mighty men. Four times in this chapter, a word is used to describe these other satraps and governors that describes them as mighty men. These men who want to bring Daniel down are mighty men. In verse 5, verse 11, verse 15, verse 24, they are called mighty men, and they are mighty We'll see in just a moment, they're so mighty, they actually have power even over Darius the king. They can get the king to do their bidding. Of course, at the same time, we're going to see by the the time we get to the end of the story, they're not so mighty. In fact, calling them mighty really turns out to be ironic. It is a form of mockery. We're going to see Daniel emerges as the true mighty man because he is righteous. Righteous and might, righteousness and power, righteousness and influence go together. This story shows us that. But at this point, what you have, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. At this point, what you have is an emerging conflict. A showdown is emerging, a kind of contest. Who does the kingdom really belong to? These 120 satraps and the two other governors are plotting against Daniel, the man of God. And the only weakness they can find to attack is his well-known commitment to obey his God. And so they seek to use his faithfulness against him. Daniel, I think, is a good example of what Peter tells Christians to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says to Christians, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer because of your own sin, because you've done dumb and and wicked things. If you're going to suffer, make sure you suffer for doing what is good. That's Daniel. This situation Daniel finds himself in would be much like a Christian today who is in politics, perhaps in political office, and his only vulnerability, because he is a man of integrity, his only vulnerability is that he actually believes what the Bible teaches about sexuality. And so that's what his opponents latch on and use against him. They try to use his faithfulness against him, and they try to brand him as a bigot or a sexist or what have you. That's the kind of thing they're doing to Daniel. Now, in this case, they use Daniel's prayer habits against him. They know Daniel to be a man of regular prayer, and so this is where they concoct their plan. This is what they will attack. The satraps come before Darius, and they say, all the governors and all the administrators and satraps and counselors and advisors, all are agreed on this matter, O king. Now, of course, this is a lie. They don't all agree. Daniel doesn't agree. Daniel is not part of this. But they say to the king, all of us have consulted together and we all agree that a royal statute should be established that whoever praised any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. And so king established a decree so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians establish a decree that only you can be prayed to for the next 30 days. Now, I don't think they're just flattering Darius here. I think there were historical and political reasons right at that moment in history why they were doing this. I'm not going to go into all of that. It would seem kind of bizarre to us, though it made a lot of sense to them. There's a reason why coming before Darius, asking him to make this decree would seem plausible. It would seem like 
politically a good idea. I don't think this is really about Darius deifying himself. Darius actually turns out to be quite humble, at least as far as Middle Eastern emperors go. Uh, he's not deifying himself here. It does seem he will be a kind of temporary high priest for all the religions in his empire. For 30 days, he will function as the high priest for every religion in his empire. So Darius hears this, Darius decides, yes, this is a good idea, and Darius establishes this decree. And so now the plot against Daniel has been hatched, the trap has been set. What does Daniel do? Well, when he hears this decree, he knows what's happened. Daniel no doubt understood exactly what was happening. Did he decide to obey the decree or not? What does Daniel do? He changes nothing. He continues to do what he has always done. He keeps his custom, which means going home, opening the windows of the upper room of his house, facing towards Jerusalem, getting on his knees and praying, just like he had always done. Daniel here is not praying for show. That's not why he allows himself to be seen. I think part of it is he's trying to set an example for the other exiles. He wants them to see that he is praying, that he's interceding for them continually, that he's, yes, high-ranking in the empire, but he hasn't forgotten about the other exiles from Judah. He's interceding on behalf of them. He's setting them an example that they, too, should be praying. Daniel does what he has always done. Also note here, why does he face Jerusalem? I think that's a good question. He faces Jerusalem, I think, not out of any superstition, as if prayer only counted if it was facing in a certain direction, but it's really because he's praying for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city. That's the place where God had put his name. What is Daniel praying for more than anything else? He's praying for the restoration of his people at the end of the 70 years of exile. And when that end of exile, when the restoration comes, that's going to mean the rebuilding of the city and the temple in Jerusalem. That's what he's praying for. So that's why he faces Jerusalem. It's because he's praying for Jerusalem. He's praying that his people, the Israelites, the Judahites, his people will repent. They will prepare for the end of exile. They will prepare to be a holy people, to return to their homeland, that they will learn the lesson of exile, that they are to be salt and light to the pagan nations around them. That's what he's praying for. And that's why he faces Jerusalem. Of course, obviously, this prayer Praying in this way puts Daniel into conflict with the law. It puts Daniel into conflict with Darius and with Darius's decree. Daniel is engaging in civil disobedience. He's flatly disobeying a decree of the king. Now, his civil disobedience is fully justified. Daniel knows we must obey God rather than men. When the law of God and the law of man come into conflict, we must obey the law of God. That's what Daniel does. And so Daniel keeps on praying to the true God, to Yahweh. He will not commit idolatry, and he will not cease praying for his people. See, Daniel is faithful to Yahweh. He's not going to commit idolatry. Daniel is living in Persia, but he's not of Persia, just like he was living in Babylon, but not of Babylon. He's in Persia, but not of Persia. He's worshiping Yahweh even in a pagan land. He's going against the flow, going against the tide, standing against the current. Here is Daniel faced with a life-threatening decree, and yet he changes nothing in his prayer habits. Again, Daniel never prayed just to be seen, 
But now he wants to make sure he is seen. He wants to make sure he continues to be seen. He wants them to know he's not obeying this decree, that he is being faithful to God. He is continuing to pray to God. Well, the government bureaucrats, the other rulers see this and they go tattle to Darius just as we would expect them to do. They say that Daniel, one of the captives of Judah, does not honor you or the decree you have signed, Darius, but he makes his petition three times a day. They mention he's from Judah, probably to insinuate that therefore he cannot be trusted because he is of a different ethnicity. Oh, he's a Judahite. You can't trust him, Darius. He's not, he's not like you. He's not one of you. The racial politics we see in our day is nothing new. They were playing racial identity politics in 600 BC. There's truly nothing new under the sun. They're doing it right here. Trying to pit Darius against Daniel based on ethnicity, create doubt and mistrust. The word that's used for Daniel's prayer, this is also interesting, the word that is used for Daniel's prayer uh, is an interesting word, his petition to the Lord. It's literally the word, word seeking. When Daniel's praying, how it describes Daniel, Daniel is seeking. That's what prayer is. It's seeking. It's seeking the Lord. That's how Jesus described prayer in Matthew chapter 7. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be answered. Prayer is seeking. What's interesting is that same word seek is also used when they seek to trap Daniel. They're seeking something against him. So Daniel is seeking the Lord. They're seeking to find fault with Daniel. In fact, it's interesting, the word seek is used seven times altogether in this chapter. The word find that goes with it is used eight times in this chapter. Those mighty men seek to find fault with Daniel and they find him seeking the Lord. They seek his death, but as we'll see, they find something else. And Daniel does not die because God does not find fault with him. Instead, God finds fault with the other governors and satraps. There's a little pun there that's going on in this story that I think is pretty interesting. It doesn't really come out in our English translations, but it, it gives you some sense of the dynamic here that's at play. There's a lot of seeking and finding here uh, in this story, and not everybody finds what they were seeking. When Darius realizes he has been duped, he is very upset about it. He's relied on Daniel. He has trusted Daniel. He likes Daniel. He knows Daniel to be a man of integrity and competence. Daniel is a man of excellence. Daniel does his work with excellence. He has this excellent spirit in him. So Darius is very distressed by this. And again, this, this is a sign. Christians should be good at what we do. We should be so good at what we do that we are always regarded as essential to it, to whatever God's called you to do. Be so good at it that you are essential Yes, that kind of leadership will draw opposition. It will draw the envy and ire of others. But it also means we can become so good at what we do that we always have leverage that they'll realize they can't do without us. That's how Darius feels about Daniel. That's how it should be. We should all do our work with this kind of excellence. Darius wants to save Daniel despite the decree. But the law is the law. The rule of law, of course, is good. When even magistrates have to submit to the law, it's interesting. Earlier in the book, you see Nebuchadnezzar is very much above the law. Now you have Darius who is under the law. Normally we would say it, it, the rule of law is good. But the rule of law is one thing. 
What the Persians have is something else. The Persians had a virtually blasphemous system that makes the law, once it is passed, so unchangeable that even if it's going to put an innocent man to death, the law cannot be canceled. It's blasphemous. In reality, only God's laws and God's statutes are unchangeable in this way. Man is not God, and so his law should never be regarded as immutable. You can say that about God's law. You cannot say that about man's law. Now also, as they have come before Darius, they've made accusations that insinuate that Daniel's not really trustworthy or that Daniel has been disrespectful to the king and to his office by disobeying the decree. Darius, of course, has now figured out what's going on. Darius is a 62-year-old man. He's well-schooled in the in the ways of these satraps and other governors. He knows what's going on. He knows this is a lie. He knows this is a false accusation against Daniel. He knows they're just trying to get at Daniel, that they're not well-intentioned. He knows Daniel is a man of competence and integrity. And so Darius is greatly distressed. He does not want to lose his right-hand man, the best of his governors, the best of his royal officials. And so he wants to try to find a way to deliver Daniel. Is there some loophole? Is there some fine print somewhere that he could use to save Daniel from being thrown to the lion's den? Alas, there is not. So it comes time to throw Daniel to the lion's den. And as Daniel is taken away to the lions, Darius says, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Your God, whom you serve, continually deliver May he deliver you. A stone is brought to the mouth of the den. The king seals it with his signet ring, as do his lords. And it appears at this point that Daniel's fate is sealed. That Daniel is going to be eaten by the lions. Verse 18 tells us the king was in such distress, he fasted all night. No musicians came to play for him, to entertain him that night as they normally would. It's like Darius undergoes a symbolic death himself. If Daniel's going to die, Darius is going to die in a way with him. He goes through this symbolic death that night as he agonizes over what has happened. In fact, I think there's a really interesting divergence in the story here, in the responses of Darius and Daniel to this whole situation. Darius is worried. Darius is the king, but he's fretting. He's anxious. He frets all night over this. He's full of anxiety. Meanwhile, Daniel has no such failure of nerve. Daniel is calm, cool, and collected. There's no indication in the story at all that Daniel is the least bit anxious about this, that he's worried about it at all. In fact, again, think about what Daniel here is facing, what he's up against. Lions are ferocious beasts. You would not want to get too close to a lion, especially a whole den of very hungry lions, because they would starve the lions for a while before they fed them their prey uh, to make sure the lions really were hungry. Uh, I think getting your flesh ripped up by the sharp teeth of a lion, having your bones crushed by the powerful jaws of a lion, that would not be a very fun way to die. That's just my opinion. Uh, But it never occurs to Daniel, when faced with this, it never occurs to Daniel that he should compromise in some way or give up his prayer habits. Just think of all the ways Daniel could have rationalized a change in his prayer customs, how he could have rationalized not praying for 30 days. He could have said, well, it's just 30 days. What's 30 days? Surely I can go without prayer for 30 days. I'll pick back up on the 31st day and it'll be fine. 
Or he could have just shut his window and privatized his faith and prayed in secret. He could have become a secret believer, a kind of underground believer for those 30 days. All kinds of ways that Daniel could have rationalized and justified some kind of compromise that would have saved his skin. But he doesn't do it. Daniel does none of those things. He has decided to be faithful to God, come what may. That's why your Sunday school teacher, when your Sunday school teacher said, dare to be a Daniel, your Sunday school teacher was right. Well, the king arose early the next morning and quickly went to the lion's den. And in a voice of lamentation, expecting the worst, he cried out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually. Note that's the second time Darius mentions Daniel's constant service to God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, has your God delivered you from the lions? And imagine Darius's relief and even joy when Daniel answers back from the lion's den. When he hears that voice, he was hoping to hear. And Daniel says, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so they have not hurt me because I was innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. And of course, the king does rejoice in this. Daniel is like a new Adam who has dominion over the beasts. He rules over even the lions of the den. Darius commands Daniel to be brought out from the den. No injury was found on Daniel. The text tells us this is because he had trusted God. Daniel says it's because of the angel. The narrator tells us it's because of his faith in God. He trusted God. That's why he was saved. Hebrews 11.33 affirms this in the New Testament. In Hebrews, we're told by faith, Saints stopped the mouths of lions. That's, uh, that verse doesn't mention Daniel by name, but it's obviously referring to this story. Daniel trusts God. He has entrusted himself to God's love, to God's care in the midst of this conflict, this battle that he's in, and he is vindicated. He is victorious. As always, as always in Scripture, trusting God is the only way of salvation. But it is a sure way of salvation. And so it is here. Well, what happens next? The tables are turned. They were seeking to find fault with Daniel. They were seeking Daniel's death. The tables now are going to be turned. In verse 24, Darius commands the men who have falsely accused Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den, along with those who conspired with them, in this case, their children and their wives. And remember, again, these men were referred to as mighty men. Four times in this story, they're referred to as mighty men. But these mighty men are overpowered by the lions. And we're told all their bones were broken in pieces as the lions devoured them. They're not so mighty after all. Da Daniel is the true mighty man. This, of course, is Lex Talonis, Justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, lion for lion. They wanted Daniel to be eaten by lions. So that punishment falls on them because of their false accusations. And then, and this, this is sometimes forgotten, this conclusion to the story, but it's really amazing and it's so important to the whole thing. King Darius sends out a letter. He sends out a, a letter to his entire empire. He sends out what you could call a theocratic decree to his entire empire. Today, if somebody did this, we would probably call it Christian nationalism. That's what somebody would call it, or Christian empireism, Darius sends out a decree to his whole empire, 
calling on his empire to respect and fear the God of Daniel. I take this as a sign that Darius himself became a Gentile God-fearer, a worshiper of Yahweh, the true God. Here in this letter, I believe he is confessing his faith. He's seeking the common good of his empire, and the way for him to do that is to call on every, every member of his empire, every subject, every citizen of his kingdom, to fear and respect the God of Daniel. He addresses this letter to all peoples, nations, and languages because his empire really was that big and that all-encompassing. And he commands that all people in his kingdom tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Now note, he does not command faith. And he doesn't threaten to punish anyone who doesn't comply. This is not conversion by force. This is not an example of, say, trying to convert people with the point of a sword. It's not that at all. He knows faith can't be coerced. But he does call on the people in his empire to fear and respect Daniel's God. He demands respect for Daniel's God, the true God. Daniel acknowledges, Darius acknowledges that Daniel's God is the true king. That if Darius is king, Daniel's God is king of kings. That's what Darius is saying in this decree. Darius goes on in this letter describing Daniel's God, for he is the living God, he is steadfast forever. His kingdom, Darius says, his kingdom, not mine, his kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. His is the everlasting kingdom, not mine, his. Theologically, all of this is true. God's kingdom is the only eternal kingdom. God is king even over earthly emperors like Darius. This is a sign of Darius' humility. And again, I take it as a sign of Darius' faith. The letter concludes, the true God, Daniel's God, he delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. This God has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. Darius writes a letter that tells his whole empire the story of how God delivered Daniel. He writes a letter to his empire. In this letter, Darius is evangelizing his kingdom. Darius is celebrating the miraculous deliverance of Daniel. He's pointing to that miraculous deliverance of Daniel and he's saying, this is the true God. This God, the God who does this, this is the God you should worship. Now look what's happened here. Daniel was faithful, even in the midst of persecution. Daniel's faithfulness influenced Darius. Darius, in turn, seeks to influence everyone in his global kingdom. All for good. All seeking to, to, to point them to the true and living God. Daniel's public allegiance to God pays off. In fact, it makes him one of the most successful missionaries in all of history. Daniel's an incredibly successful missionary to the pagans, converting even emperors and having emperors send out evangelistic letters to their whole realm. I think there's a further layer to this, the fact that Daniel survives a lion's den. Why lions? Certainly ancient emperors had zoos. They would keep a lot of different animals uh, on hand as a sign of their wealth and for their enjoyment. But it's lions. Why is it lions? Well, in the book of Daniel, different kingdoms that come and go from the stage of world history are symbolized by different animals. And in the very next chapter, in Daniel chapter 7, the lion represents Babylon. It is Babylon who first took Israel into exile. And Babylon is 
the lion, the fact that lions' mouths were stopped and that Daniel came through this ordeal with the lions victoriously is symbolic and prophetic. And everybody would have understood this. The other exiles from Judah would have understood this. They would know, okay, if we have faith like Daniel, if we trust God the way Daniel is trusting God, if we seek God the way Daniel is seeking God, we likewise will be vindicated and restored from exile. The lion of Babylon that sought to devour us and gobble us up will be delivered if we trust in God. See, this story is about much, much more than merely the victory of one man over his false accusers. This story shows us what God is doing in history. It reveals to us God's pattern and God's purpose in history, what God is doing for his people. And again, everyone living in Darius's day and Daniel's day would have gotten this. Everyone receiving Darius's letter would have understood all of this. They knew that the lion was the symbol of Babylon. They knew that Daniel's victory over the lions means that the pagan kingdoms will not win. That Daniel's God is going to win. Daniel's God cannot be overcome. Daniel's God will overcome. He will overcome all pagan kingdoms, all pagan opposition. That's what it means. Now, this is a fun story, obviously, but what does it mean for us? What do we do with a story like this? Generations and centuries and millennia later, what do we do with a story like this? Well, again, first, your Sunday school teacher really was right. You should dare to be a Daniel. We should all seek to be brave. We should seek to stand on truth and on principle We should stand on biblical law. We should worship God. No matter what it might cost us, we should stand for the law of God. We should worship God no matter what risks it entails. I'll tell you, that kind of courage is in short supply today. It's in short supply in the church. Daniel was willing to stand alone, even, if that's what it took. He would stay true to God, even if it cost him his life. That is true courage. He knew the risks, he knew what he was up against, and he was faithful anyway. That is an inspiring example. We should seek to have that same kind of courage. We need more Daniels. We need more Daniels. Believers with the courage to act and speak their convictions, who will not allow their convictions to be diluted by the world. Believers who have integrity and courage If we want to change our world, if we want to change our culture, if we want to change the Dariuses of our day, we have to courageously bear witness before them no matter the cost. They have to see us practice our faith in all of life, all the time. Just like Darius saw Daniel serving the Lord continuously, we want to live in such a way that people see we're serving God in all of life, all the time. That's what we want them to see. And that takes courage. But there's so much more to Daniel's example than just his bravery. There's Daniel's wisdom here. Daniel really is a model for Christian engagement with a hostile world, Christian engagement with a hostile culture. Daniel practiced his faith in a world much like ours, a very pluralistic world, a polytheistic world, you could say. But Daniel lived in such a way that he was salt and light. Daniel would not assimilate to the ways of the pagans around him. He would not compromise or privatize his faith in any way, even though that would have been the path of least resistance. Just privatize his faith, he won't do it. And that is why he could provide godly leadership in a godless culture. Again, notice that. I I keep pointing this out, but it's so important. Twice Darius says to Daniel, 
he, he points this out about Daniel, that Daniel serves his God continually in everything he does. Darius knows that Daniel's faith in God shapes his whole life, not just part of life, not just, say, the private part of life, but the public, and you could say, political part of life as well. His faith shapes everything he does, and that includes his public and political engagement. So whether Daniel is in his prayer chamber in his house or if he is in the king's chamber in the palace, Daniel is going to be faithful to God. He's going to serve God there, wherever he finds himself. And again, that has a huge impact on Darius. When Daniel is forced to choose between obeying the state and obeying God, he chooses God. Daniel was the best citizen possible, the best servant, the best worker possible, right up to that moment when the law of the land clashed with the law of God. And then when he had to make a choice, yes, he chose righteously, he chose to obey God. He would not grant that the law of the Medes and the Persians was supreme. There is a law above the state's law. Daniel knew this and lived by it. The law of God is above the law of the state. The law of God is the only true, ultimate, and unchanging law. Only the law of God is absolute. Only God's word is absolute. Daniel knew that, and he lived that way. But the thing is, even when Daniel disobeyed the king's decree and became, you could say, an agitator, a revolutionary, when he was practicing civil disobedience, even when he practiced this disobedience, he still really was the best possible citizen because, and this is so important to see, because even by disobeying, he was seeking the good of the land in which he lived. Even in disobeying, he was seeking the good of his kingdom. And that's what he got, the good of the kingdom. See, he, he, he sought to love Darius and love Persia. And that's why he did what he did. Now, wouldn't you love to have a civil magistrate, the highest magistrate in our land, send out a letter like Darius's letter? Wouldn't you love to have that happen? The only way that can happen is if we have Christian citizens who live like Daniel. In fact, think about this. Daniel is what you could call the lesser magistrate. So Darius would be the highest magistrate. Daniel is the lesser magistrate, an intermediate magistrate who stands between the highest magistrate and the people. Daniel's civil disobedience made it possible for others to disobey the tyrannical decree as well. Now, we don't have a record of that happening here. We're not told about anybody else that followed Daniel's example in this. My guess is that at least some other Jews followed suit, and they followed Daniel's example. They disregarded the king's decree, and they kept praying to Yahweh. Despite the decree, they continued to worship the Lord. But you see what that means, if that's what happened, Daniel interposed himself between the tyrannical law and the people. And there's actually a long history of this in the church, going back to, of course, the Old Testament, a long history of this. It's called the doctrine of interposition, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, that the lesser magistrate can stand up to tyranny when it comes from a higher magistrate on behalf of the people and legitimately lead the people in civil disobedience. That's what Daniel is doing here. Christian governors and mayors in our day should be doing this, I'd say, quite regularly. They should openly defy higher powers when those higher powers seek to enact unjust and tyrannical laws. Again, it's the Christian doctrine of interposition. The American war for independence 
put this doctrine into practice. It was lesser magistrates, colonial legislatures, and elected colonial leaders who led the people in their war against tyranny coming from King George and, and Parliament. That's the, the whole American war for independence is based on this doctrine that traces back to Daniel chapter 6 and, of course, other places in Scripture. It is to our shame as American Christians, it is to our shame that so few Christians in public office will do this. It is to our shame. If you want local and state politics to matter, and it needs to matter, but if you want local and state politics to matter, what you need to do is elect men who will stand up to higher powers when those higher powers, like the feds, seek to impose unrighteous decrees upon us. That's what it takes. That's what it would mean to dare to be a Daniel for a Christian who is in political office. If we want the laws of our state and our nation to reflect the justice found in God's law, this is a necessity. If we want the true God, the living God, the triune God to be respected and feared in our land as he should be, this is what it's going to take. Lesser magistrates who will interpose themselves between tyranny, between unrighteous laws and the people. See, when Daniel did this, when Daniel practiced civil disobedience, he was not being a bad citizen. He was being the best possible citizen and the best possible governor precisely because he became the loyal opposition. When the king went astray, Daniel became the loyal opposition. He stood against Persia for the good of Persia. We need Christians in politics, Christians in office who will stand against America for the good of America. Christian magistrates who will interpose themselves between tyranny and injustice and unrighteous laws on behalf of the people who will put themselves between that kind of tyranny and the citizens. But the most important way to understand Daniel, as important as all that is, the most important way to understand Daniel is as a Christ figure. Daniel, you see, points us to Jesus. Jesus, you could say, is the greater Daniel. Think about what happens here. Think about the shape of this story, the pattern of this story. Daniel undergoes a kind of death and resurrection when he's thrown into the lion's den. He doesn't literally die, but it's a kind of symbolic death. He's thrown into the pit, into the lion's den, and then he emerges more glorious, more powerful than before. Think of the parallels with Jesus, parallels between Daniel and Jesus. Both Daniel and Jesus are men of regular prayer. Both Daniel and Jesus are victims of an envious conspiracy led by wicked men. They're both sentenced to death on the basis of false charges. Both, of course, are innocent. Daniel, relatively innocent. Jesus, absolutely innocent. Just as Darius wanted to protect Daniel at the first, so Pilate at first wanted to protect Jesus as well. Initially, he wanted to find some other way, just like Darius looks for some other way to spare Daniel. Pilate wanted to spare Jesus. In both cases, a rock is placed in the way of escape, a rock over the pit, a rock on the front of the tomb. In both cases, it's affixed with a royal seal, even details like this parallel. At dawn, the king hurries to the pit, just as at dawn on the third day, the women hurried to the tomb. At dawn, both Daniel and Jesus emerge miraculously alive, and indeed you could say they rise to rule. 
And the result in both cases is the victory of God's kingdom. In both cases, their actions have a global impact on all peoples, tribes, and tongues. Because of Daniel's faithfulness, this decree goes forth. This decree is kind of like a proto-great commission. It's a message sent out to all the lands, all the peoples, that Daniel's God is king. In the Great Commission, after Jesus' resurrection, he commends, he commands his disciples basically to take a letter, to take a message, to take a gospel that will announce the same thing, to go forth and preach that he's king of kings, Jesus is Lord. See, this story really, this story in Daniel 6, it is a gospel story. And it's so important to understand it's a gospel story because the reality is our stories don't always turn out the way Daniel's does here. Our stories don't always have this happy ending. See, it's a gospel story. And for that reason, it has application even in those cases that don't turn out like this one. Daniel was thrown to the lions and the mouths of the lions were shut. And so Daniel lived, we're told at the end of the story, he prospered, he experienced major vindication in this life. He got to see his enemies judged, his enemies destroyed. He got to see his emperor converted. He got to see all those things he had been longing for. But not every Christian gets that. Many Christians have been thrown to the lions and the mouths of the lions were not stopped. The lions devoured them. Think about those Christians in the early church who were rounded up and taken to the Colosseum in Rome and thrown to the lions and eaten alive for the entertainment of the pagan emperor and the other pagans who were gathered. Oh, they were righteous. The reason they were being persecuted is because they refused to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar. They would not commit idolatry. Just like Daniel, they insisted on being faithful to worship God alone. That's why they were persecuted but they did not experience vindication in the way Daniel did. They experienced martyrdom. Here's the point then, and this is why it's so important to see this is a gospel story. Whether you experience vindication, some measure of vindication in this life, or if you experience martyrdom, whether the lions spare you or eat you, if you are faithful to God, in the midst of hardship and persecution, you will be victorious in the end. Because Jesus, your greater Daniel, has won that victory for you. You will be vindicated in the end. If it doesn't happen in this life, it's coming. If you will live as salt and light, you can be assured of final vindication. Final glory will be yours. Final victory is yours. No matter what happens in this life, You can be assured that your obedience will ultimately change the world, even if you don't live to see it. You can be assured that through your faithfulness in the midst of persecution, that the lost are going to hear and see the gospel and be converted. So as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, and as Jesus said before that in Matthew chapter 5, the Gentiles will see your good deeds and will glorify God. Darius saw Daniel's good deeds and glorified God. If you'll live faithfully, whether you live to see it or not, that's what's going to happen. Those who trust God win. Those who obey God win. Those who seek God in prayer find him and win. Whether you are vindicated in this life or martyred in this life, you're going to win. 
You're going to win because God is on your side. Jesus is on your side. It does not matter who is against us. God is with us. We will be victorious. We will be more than conquerors. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.